Caller, you're on the air. How's the weather in your neck of the woods? You mean the winter storms a news cycle has been spinning its wheels with for weeks? Oh, yeah. I've heard all about the tempest in a teapot. There are snowstorms all over and now floods from an atmospheric river. Not exactly camping weather, my friend. <laughs> weather is the least of my concerns when it comes to camping. All right. What do you know about camping that the rest of us don't? How about three Girl Scouts strangled in the dead of night? A scout leader guilty of sexual assault and murder? And a crazed Nebraska man who killed an Iowa family in a campground slaying? Here are three camp killers. Warning. What you're about to hear is true. At Hookswitch Hotline, we delve deep into shocking true crimes, including murder, violence, kidnapping, mutilation, and sexual assault. Not for children or the squeamish. Some will find this podcast disturbing. Listener discretion is strongly advised. At around 7 p.m. on Sunday, June 12th, 1977, the night before camp started, a thunderstorm hit the area and the girls huddled in their tents. Among them were Laura Lee Farmer, 8 years old, Doris Denise Milner, 10, and Michelle Heather Gus, age 9. The girls were all residents of Broken Era, Oklahoma, a suburb of Tulsa. They were sharing tent number 8 in the cabin's Kiowa unit, which was located the furthest from the camp counselor's tent and partially obscured by the showers for the camp. At around 6 a.m. on June 13th, a camp counselor on her way to the shower found a girl's body in her sleeping bag in the forest. It was soon discovered that all three girls in tent number 8 had been murdered. Their bodies had been left on a trail leading to the showers, about 150 yards from their tent. Subsequent testing showed that they had been raped, bludgeoned, and strangled. A large red flashlight was found on top of the girls' bodies. A fingerprint was found on the lens, but it has never been identified. A footprint from a 9.5 shoe size was also found in the blood in the tent. Between 2.30 and 3 a.m. on June 13th, a landowner reported hearing quite a bit of traffic on a remote road near the camp. Camp Scott was evacuated and later shut down. Less than two months before the murders, during an on-site training session, a counselor at Camp Scott discovered that her belongings had been ransacked and her donuts had been stolen. Inside the empty donut box was a handwritten note stating in capital letters, quote, We are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one, end quote. The director of that camp session treated the note as a prank and it was discarded. Jean Leroy Hart was at large since 1973 after escaping from the Mays County Jail. He'd been convicted of kidnapping and raping two pregnant women, as well as four counts of first-degree burglary. Raised about a mile from Camp Scott, Hart, a member of the Cherokee Nation, was arrested within a year at the home of a Cherokee medicine man. He was represented by Gavin A. Isaacs, an Oklahoma attorney. He was tried in March 1979, Although a local sheriff pronounced himself, quote, 1,000% certain that Hart was guilty, a local jury acquitted him anyway. As a convicted rapist and jail escapee, Hart still had 305 years of his 308-year sentence left to serve in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. As a convicted rapist and jail escapee, Hart still had 305 years of his 308-year sentence left to serve in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. On June 4, 1979, Hart collapsed and died of a heart attack at the age of 35 after about an hour of lifting weights and jogging in the prison exercise yard. The Magic Empire Council of Girl Scouts is one of 331 councils 
chartered by the Girl Scouts of the USA and is charged with administering the Girl Scout program in the seven counties in northeastern Oklahoma. Two of the families later sued the Magic Empire Council and its insurer for $5 million, alleging negligence. The civil trial included discussion of the threatening note and the fact that tent number seven was 86 yards from the counselor's tent. In 1985, by a 9-3 vote, jurors decided in favor of Magic Empire. In 1989, DNA testing was conducted that showed three of the five probes matched Hart's DNA. Statistically, DNA from one in 7,700 Native Americans would obtain these results. In 2008, authorities conducted new DNA testing on stains found on a pillowcase, the results of which proved inconclusive because the samples were too deteriorated to obtain a DNA profile. In 2017, $30,000 in donations were raised by the sheriff in order to do new DNA tests using the latest advances in testing. In 2022, authorities made public that DNA evidence was strongly suggesting Hart's involvement. Sheriff Mike Reed of Mays County said, unless something new comes up, something brought to light we're not aware of, I'm convinced where I'm sitting of Hart's guilt and involvement in this case. Reed said the results of the DNA tests have been known since 2019, but didn't go public with the findings until asked to do so by the victim's families. For our next story, we go to Minnesota. Linda and Charles Jensen were married in 1971, divorced eight years later, and remarried in 1991. They welcomed their son, Andrew, into the world in 1973, but in 1978, Linda filed for divorce due to Charles' drinking problem. In 1982, Linda was in a new relationship with Robert Beard, and the two had a son together, Joey, but split up when he was very young. Then, in 1986, she married John Silliman and moved in with him to California, where he adopted Joey, a situation which would have required Beard to legally relinquish his parental rights. That marriage had also soured within a couple of years and she and Joey had moved back to Minnesota by 1990. There, she reconnected with Charlie, who had quit drinking, and the two told their families they'd never stopped loving each other. They remarried on April 4, 1991, and two months later, she gave birth to their daughter, Lisa. Then in 1992, the unthinkable happened. Charlie told the police that he left for work that morning at 6.15 a.m., his usual time, and Linda left at home with the baby and Joey, who would have left for school at 7.45 a.m. He tried to call her about something around 9.45 a.m., but she didn't pick up, and by noon, he'd called three times with no answer. He got mad, assuming she was home but ignoring his calls, so he left work a little early and got there around 4.05 p.m. When he arrived, Joey, who had gotten home from school, was doing his homework and Lisa was in the playpen. He then found Linda's dead body. Police were able to verify his alibi, but they still asked him to take a polygraph, which he passed, and to provide a DNA sample, which he did. The next day, police got a tip from a mail carrier who said she had been by the Jensen house the day of the murder. David Eunice, a reporter from the St. Cloud Times said, the mail carrier arrived at the house around 11.30 that morning, and she said at the time she saw a man in a pickup truck pulling out of the driveway and said she got a pretty good description of the man, end quote. She said the truck was an older tan model and described the man as scruffy, Caucasian male in his late 30s or early 40s. 
They had her sit with the sketch artist and released that sketch to the media. Officers also re-canvassed the neighbors and heard the Jones family might have seen the truck. Investigator for the Sheridan County Sheriff's Department said Kent Jones was a scout leader. He had four children. We were hoping he could name the person that the mail carrier observed leaving the Jensen residence. He wasn't home when they came by, but his wife, Deborah Jones, was. She told them she'd seen the pickup truck around the neighborhood, but she didn't know who the driver was. Cops then started looking into Linda's ex-boyfriend, Robert Beard. Beard didn't see much of his son. He'd given up custody and didn't pay child support. But police learned he'd been trying to get more visitation before Linda's death. He'd contacted Linda at least twice in the weeks before the murder, demanding more visitation and threatening to try and gain full custody of Joey. Beard was brought in for questioning and denied being in touch with Linda, even after police confronted him with what her husband said about his calls. Still, he pointed out to police that he had no car and couldn't have walked to Linda's. Linda and Charles lived together with her young son and infant daughter in Big Lake, Minnesota. Their oldest son, Andrew, lived nearby. Appellant Kent Richard Jones and his wife Deborah lived a short distance from the Jensen's home. On February 24, 1992, Charles discovered Linda's dead body in the bedroom of their home. Her nude body was partially covered by a comforter, which had been pinned to her chest with a knife. Charles immediately noticed law enforcement officials who arrived at the scene shortly thereafter. The police conducted an extensive investigation but police found almost no physical evidence in the home. The sheets from the bed were missing and have never been located. No fingerprints discovered in the home were of sufficient quality to yield an identification, and the canine unit survey of the area around the Jensen residence uncovered no other evidence. An autopsy revealed that Linda had been beaten, sexually assaulted anally and vaginally, strangled, and slowly stabbed numerous times in the chest. A quantity of semen was recovered from Linda's body, and it was determined that she had been killed in the course of a criminal sexual assault. Based on a number of factors, the medical examiner concluded that Linda died somewhere on the morning of February 24th, likely between 8 and 10 a.m. Law enforcement officers initially focused their investigation on Charles and Andrew Jensen, whom they considered the most likely suspects. Officers also interviewed residents of the neighborhood to determine if anyone had observed anything unusual on the morning of the murder. Jones was briefly interviewed at his residence, but did not mention that he knew Linda or her family, or that he had seen any suspicious activity on the day of the murder. Semen found at the crime scene yielded a DNA profile, which was compared against samples from approximately 80 suspects and a national DNA database, but no match was found. Investigators reviewed over 1,000 other possible leads, but without a DNA match or other evidence to identify a perpetrator, the case went cold. In the year 2000, police received a tip from a woman named Angela Hennon. Alan Pendleton, the now former district court judge for the 10th Judicial District of Minnesota, said Angela identified herself as a prior acquaintance of Kent Jones by which she meant she'd had an affair with the Boy Scout leader right after Linda's murder. She said she'd brought up the murder at some point, and she'd become livid and denied knowing Linda. A few months later, Angela indicated that when she was talking to Mr. Jones, he indicated that he knew Linda quite well. He saw her jogging past his residence, he visited with her, and he basically changed the story completely from what he'd told her previously. It was also a big change from what he told police when they interviewed him as a potential witness back in 1992. 
Police then started investigating the church-going family man and scout leader. Poslesny said, quote, Jones had a lot of skeletons in his closet. Outwardly, he seemed like a family man, and inwardly, he had a very, very dark side to him, end quote. Police discovered his wife, Deborah, had once gone to the ER with a stab wound, claiming that she had slipped near the open dishwasher and landed on a knife that had been loaded with the handle down. Police were suspicious about whether it really happened that way. It was one of the several domestic violence calls police had gotten about Jones, according to court documents. Police went to interview him again and again. He denied knowing Linda. But Jones eventually changed his story and admitted Linda used to jog by his house and they'd had conversations in the past. Police then asked him if he had an affair with her and he became angry and defensive. He was then asked to give a DNA sample but refused to do so, the first person in eight years to refuse. Subsequently, a search warrant was obtained for a sample of Jones's DNA. Testing of that sample revealed that Jones's DNA matched that of the semen found on Linda's body. Pendleton said, quote, She was naked. She had a comforter over her body with a large knife pinning the comforter to her body, having been stabbed right through her chest. The victim had been stabbed not just once, but multiple times in the chest area, end quote. The weapon was determined to be a steak knife from her own kitchen, but nothing else in the house had been disturbed and there were no other signs of forced entry. There were also no fingerprints and no blood that didn't appear to be Linda's. Jones was arrested on July 25, 2000 for first degree murder. He was ultimately indicted by a grand jury on three counts, first degree murder, second degree murder, intentional murder, and criminal sexual conduct in the first degree and went to trial on May 31st, 2001. Pendleton said, quote, under oath in court in front of the jury, he testified that he had actually been having an affair with Linda Jensen. The family were outraged. You could feel the chill in the courtroom, end quote. Linda's sister, Sandra, said, quote, no way in hell, no way could that happen. He murdered my sister and he's trying to murder her reputation and how dare he, end quote. On December 8, 2001, the jury found Jones guilty on all three charges, and he was later sentenced to life in prison. But then in 2004, Jones won a retrial on appeal, based entirely on the judge's decision not to allow him to present evidence that Beard or Christie might have killed Linda. In November 2006, Jones went on trial again, and instead of pointing the finger at Beard or Christie, claimed that Charlie Jensen, or the never-identified man supposedly seen in a pickup truck, was the killer. Court documents also reflect that Jones claimed at trial that he was a skilled lover and that Linda had come to him for more spice. Jones called his wife as a defense witness, court documents say, and under cross-examination admitted that Jones was not a skilled lover. Jones appealed his conviction in part based on that line of questioning, but lost. Jones was again convicted of all charges and again sentenced to life in prison. Jones remains incarcerated at the Minnesota Correctional Facility, Stillwater, in Bayport, Minnesota. He will become eligible for parole in 2030, but Jensen's family has vowed to fight to keep him in prison. And now Anthony Sherwin. For today's final story, we go to Des Moines, Iowa, where 35-year-old Felicia Coe was at the Mokota Caves State Park campground with her boyfriend and his two sons, ages 11 and 16. She said the 16-year-old went out early to go running, and she was talking with someone at the park around 6.30 a.m. When two park rangers dressed in helmets, vests, and carrying what looked like automatic rifles told them to leave the campground. 
more law enforcement, and an ambulance showed up as Coe went to find her boyfriend's teenage son. At the time, Coe did not know what had happened, but she recalls seeing a little boy standing near the paramedics. She said, he was in his pajamas. I distinctly remember he had one blue tennis shoe. She later saw a picture of the Schmidt family online and said she recognized the boy she saw as Arlo. Coe said, he's got this really cute, floppy, curly, moppy, strawberry blonde hair that's really distinguishable. He was in these super cute little pajamas, like a cotton t-shirt and shorts that matched. He was just standing there. He wasn't crying. He wasn't distraught, but he also wasn't being comforted. He was just standing there by himself. She said the campers got little information about what had happened there, and she began piecing it together on the drive home. Nine-year-old Arlo was camping at an Iowa State Park with his parents and six-year-old sister, and he survived a shooting that killed the rest of his family. The Iowa Department of Public Safety identified the victims as Tyler Schmidt, aged 42, his 42-year-old wife Sarah Schmidt, and their six-year-old daughter Lula Schmidt, all of Cedar Falls, Iowa. Their bodies were found in their tent at the Makokata Cave State Park campground, about 180 miles east of Des Moines. Known as a destination for spelunkers and hikers, Makokata Caves State Park has more caves than any other state park in Iowa. Located about 61 miles northeast of Cedar Rapids, Makokata Caves State Park features 13 caves, including Dance Hall Cave, which is approximately 800 feet long. Mike Crapful, special agent in charge of the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, said at a news conference that authorities responded to reports of a shooting at the Makokata Cave State Park campground in eastern Iowa shortly before 6.30 a.m. When officers arrived at the scene, they found three people dead. As officials searched the 370-acre state park, Crapful said they found the body of a camper with a self-inflicted gunshot wound who they believed was the gunman. Authorities identified him as Anthony Sherwin, a 23-year-old man from Nebraska. Authorities said the suspected gunman was found dead Friday in a wooded area of the park with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Assistant Director of the Department of Public Safety's Division of Criminal Investigation told the Associated Press that the motive for the attack was still unknown and added, we don't know what led up to this, what precipitated it. The investigation has not revealed any early interaction between the Schmidt family and him. Adam Morehouse, Sarah Schmidt's brother, said the family had no connection to Sherwin and he believed it was a completely random act. The Des Moines Register reported that Sherwin was from La Vista, Nebraska. La Vista Police Chief Bob Lawston told the newspaper that Sherwin lived in an apartment complex with his parents and had no history of criminal conduct. Cedar Falls Mayor Rob Green, who said he is a neighbor of the Schmitz, posted on Facebook that the couple's nine-year-old son Arlo survived the attack and is safe, end quote. The post did not say whether Arlo was in the tent or even at the campsite when the shootings took place, and the mayor told the Associated Press he didn't have those details. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds said in a statement that she was horrified by the shooting this morning at Makokata State Park and devastated by the loss of three innocent lives. On Twitter, she said, as we grieve this unimaginable tragedy, Kevin and I pray for the victim's family members and the law enforcement officers who responded to the scene. We ask Iowans to do the same. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hook Switch Hotline. Join us next week when we'll dive deep into more graphic true crime.
With every crime, someone somewhere has information that someone could be you. Email us at hookswitchhotline at gmail.com or leave a message at 415-448-7263.